and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. I don't know about you, but lockdown easing has felt different for me this time. I'm delighted to see friends and I'd talk to them for hours if it didn't mean freezing my extremities off. I'm longing for the chance to talk to people I don't know in real life about politics. But I sense not everyone is in the same place and I despair a bit about our ability to get civic life going again. How are we going to do politics after this pandemic? With me to talk about that is Tim Dixon, co-founder of Mooring Common. Hello, Tim. Welcome to The Bunker. Hi, Ross. Thanks very much. Great to join. Tell us a bit about what Mooring Common does. So Mooring Common is uh, was started in the last five years in response to feeling that the forces of division, the forces driving people apart in Western societies were growing and growing. I was a personal friend of Joe Cox, the uh, Labour MP who was was murdered in uh, 2016 by a member of her own constituency, a member of the public. And, uh, and that was a moment where we'd already been working on this idea, particularly around the refugee crisis and why was it that people are turning against populations that once we, we had more sympathy for. Uh, but that was certainly a personal moment of feeling that things are reaching a crescendo. Obviously, we had the intense divisions of Brexit. Uh, so that was a starting point. I have a background in politics. I was I worked for Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard uh, in Australia as their speechwriter, so two, two Labor prime ministers, but have had a bunch of other experiences and starting new social enterprises over the years. But this is the thing that, you know, not just as a small project, but as a major life project um, I'm working on now, because I just feel that the between... The, the the growth of inequality and the way in which globalization is affecting the the lives of people the way that technology is changing changing us uh, creating so much more insecurity but also polarizing us turning us into our tribes we're against each other the way that the pace of change is so fast for people uh, there's so many forces that are, are driving societies apart and I think that for a long time we've kind of lived off the capital that was built up by previous generations in the glue that holds societies together. Uh, and I think now's the time that we need to reinvest in that. We need to strengthen those those connections in our communities. Otherwise, we're really at risk from the wave of populism that we've seen in recent years, the kind of desire to just turn everything upside down that is profoundly threatening to, to democracy. So, and I don't think that's a that's not a short term risk. I think that's a that's a sort of a generational risk that we're facing. Many of those forces dividing our societies are growing in the years ahead, uh, and that's why more in common does its work. And we're kind of you know we're across four countries: the U- US, UK, France, and Germany. We're not just looking at these issues from within one country perspective. And what you find is when you look at it from that perspective, there's so much in common between different societies in what in these forces that we're dealing with, which are sort of undermining the um, uh, the ties that hold us together. So we need a lot of thought and a lot of action to to strengthen those connections and to to make our democracy more resilient and more united. So you did some research recently with More in Common, and it found the good news was that we are not perhaps as divided as we were before the pandemic. What is it that has brought us together, despite the fact that we've all had to stay at home and have had very little contact with each other, physical and social contact. Yeah, the thing that's different in the UK compared to other countries is how much there has been a a sense of social solidarity or resilience. The measure, for example, we've asked a bunch of questions across seven countries about people, how they feel about others' kind, their feeling about, uh, are they worried about the impact of the uh, of COVID on minorities? Do they trust other people around them? Um, the, whether they see uh, acts of generosity, whether they feel that they can make a difference in their community more um, in recent months. 
And on all of those questions in the UK, people come pretty close to the top, if not the top. Now, that doesn't mean that the experience is a universally positive one. Of course, there's parts of the community have been much harder hit than others. And it's a really, really different experience if your you know, workers just now sitting on Zoom calls and managing Amazon deliveries, um, as opposed to being on the frontline NHS worker or delivery or working in a supermarket or all of those things. But when you account for all of those factors, what's interesting in the UK is more of a sense of um, people pulling together, even with the ups and downs that have happened over the past year, and there have been ups and downs, there's still more of a sense of us pulling together. And, and kind of interestingly, like not a, not a super political lens on it. I mean, if you're a political obsessive and come out with that background um, like me it's sometimes hard to understand how much most people do not see the world through a primarily political lens so we've had, had a lot of people that we've been talking to and we've done uh, all of our research is kind of representative samples of the whole country but it's really striking how many people especially in the UK are willing to give the government the benefit of the doubt and to say, look, you know, I know they've made a lot of mistakes and I know that a lot of things have gone wrong, but I wouldn't want to be in their position. Is it fair to say that Remainer and Lever, that divide that obsessed us in 2018, 2017, 2018, 2019, is that not just an outdated divide now, but is it one that people really actively want to avoid? What we found is exactly what Paula Surridge spoke to you about a few weeks ago when you interviewed her, that it's the, the strength of that identity is still there, but it is fading. But what's striking is that people's identification with being a Remainer or a Lever is a lot stronger than their identification with a political party still at this stage. So more than half, when we asked at the beginning of the year, more than half the country said that that was an important part of their identity whereas people's attachment to political parties is down around one in three people now. It's still a, a factor, but I do think it's fading. I think it just depends really on the course of events. I mean, what had happened last year was it really fell away quite significantly. And then when we had the final negotiations and the, you know, the news was very focused in late December, early January on, on the, the Brexit deal, then it, it, it resurged. I think that uh, what's underneath that division of Remainer and Lever is a more profound difference that you see in across Western societies, which is essentially between a more um, outward-oriented, cosmopolitan uh, group that believes in openness, highly educated, higher income, less experience of insecurity in their lives, the remainder types, versus the lever types who tend to be more of a sense of insecurity, more nostalgic, more attached to tradition, and uh, you know less enthusiastic about change. And I think that how our society manages that division is those those differences is a big part of whether we are, become more divided in the future or whether we're able to come together. Some societies are managing those this period of change really poorly. The United States being the most obvious. But this tactic of driving a wedge between people, it's worked pretty well for Boris Johnson so far, hasn't it? And some of his MPs are keen to carry on trying it with appeals to what we could loosely call the culture wars, things like statues and generational tensions. Is that going to work, do you think? Or is it the not just the wrong thing to do, but is it going to be ineffective? Well, I think it's a I think it's a battle for the soul of the Conservative Party in the in the years ahead as to whether um, the forces of division, the, the case for playing culture war politics wins 
over uh, you know, more of the one nation values of finding common ground and, and governing more from the centre. I think it can go either way. I mean, I think this is where, so my point of view, I have come from a lifetime of uh, much of my life of working in progressive politics. One of the things that has I've become increasingly conscious of myself is how those of us who are come from the progressive side, we should be more concerned about the health of politics on the other side. Because the reality is in broadly two party systems or, you know, systems which essentially change from one majority party to another, uh, a good deal of the time, whether it's 40% or 60% from decade to decade of the time is going to be the other side in power. And it makes a real difference if they're trying to destroy the system in the way that the Republican Party is now in the United States, or if they're um, working within the system, perhaps with different values, but, but still working within the system, like the Christian Democrats in Germany, for example. I think that if the government um, in the future relies more on the, the sort of the shallow appeal to uh, us versus them to divisions, it would be a reflection of a failure of governance because it's what you do when you don't have, when you're not succeeding in, in delivering for people. What I'm somewhat more optimistic about is, is that I think there's a bunch of issues which are now common ground across most of our politics, majorities of people who support both of the, the major parties around addressing inequality, around strengthening local communities, a sort of a rebalancing of power between Westminster and the rest of the country, around climate and nature and environment. There are commonalities that don't exist in most other Western democracies. And, and one of the things that I, I would say again, and this is me sort of being a little bit different in the way that I think about politics as I did in the past, that the kind of change that we now need in Britain, it has to outlast governments. If we're going to do the levelling up agenda, if we're going to address the growth of inequality, uh, it can't do it in a way that is simply going to change where policies are going to dramatically lurch from one side to the other. Uh, what we need is more like what happened post-Second World War with the Beveridge Report, where Attlee's changes in the 40s were largely untouched in the 50s um, under Churchill and subsequent Conservative governments. We need that sort of generational change. And the problem is that the politics, the way politics plays out now, particularly on social media, is it's winner takes all. You don't want to concede anything to the other side. But I think the only way we actually lock in lasting changes that, that improve the country and actually restore people's faith in democracy is people being willing to make compromises and find on some issues some degree, being able to actually find some bipartisanship. And that doesn't mean the soft, mushy middle because I actually think that there's a the middle in the UK is really keen for certain changes, but it means conceding that the other side have a point and it means not just pursuing, you know, a, uh, a, a when I'm in power, everything goes my way. When they're in power, everything goes their way. Yeah, on the beverage moment thing, which lots of people have talked about recently, especially on the left, you know, on the one hand, people are saying the potential su support for state intervention in people's lives hasn't been greater for a long time because, you know, we people have been getting furlough. The state has been massively involved in people's lives in a way it hasn't been for a long time. But on the other, if you ask people about quite radical policies like a universal basic income or green taxation, things like that, they, they're not very keen. And one of the examples uh, I've heard you give is about um, veganism, where, you know, people say, well, no, I couldn't possibly go vegan, but I'm very keen. I'm, I love the idea of the English countryside and I want to preserve that, but I'm not prepared to take radical action. And there's this kind of inertia about politics at the moment where it feels like we're on the cusp of something, but we don't know what. 
Will that last, do you think? Or are we actually, is, is there going to be radical change soon? I think there is definitely an appetite for change. So we asked this question about whether you want people for things to return back to normal on the other side of the pandemic or you want significant change. And the UK, more than any other major Western democracies, um, people say they're up for change. But that change isn't necessarily the projection of one side of politics. One of the most, you know, in our segmentation of the country, progressive activists um, are just 13% of the country. They have a particular view that is not the same one that's shared by the whole of the country. What you've got to look for is where there's common ground, um, that where you're getting 60%, 70% plus agreement. And I think there actually is common ground on the need for, for, for change. But the appetite is really more, it's less a kind of visionary, we'll build the New Jerusalem um, sentiment, and a little bit more, there's things in our country that are broken and we really need to fix. To give you, I think the one that jumps out at me most from our conversations is, only one in seven people in the country think that if you work hard, your hard work is adequately rewarded in the country. That's actually the way in to understand why there's such a concern about inequality. And if you reward hard work, if that's the centrepiece of how you address inequality, but you're also picking up all the people who can't necessarily work hard, there's a real recognition of that too. If you only frame it as uh, we've got to uh, tackle inequality and redistribute income. Uh, you actually lose quite a bit of the country in in just appealing to, in a sense, to a more welfare-oriented sentiment. But there's a potential to actually bridge those two and to have, have real change. So I think that there is appetite to fix things. The danger is or the problem is that a lot of the change, as you framed it, you know, a lot of the change is about government's drive, change. That's certainly particularly from the left how we view it. Problem with that is that governments have, uh, there's a tremendous distrust in institutions and government, and particularly centralised government in Westminster. So I think that the way we envisage change also needs to be different to the government's going to deliver all of this. There's got to be a rebalancing of power back to regions. That's I actually think it's kind of local communities um, as much as it is about the the four nations. And I think there is a lot of common ground, actually, about what that can be. For example, there's a very large number of people across the country who, who actually believe that the changes we need to make to respond to climate change and environmental threats will create jobs. That is a tremendous opportunity. It's not the case in a lot of other countries. Where I grew up in Australia, you know, climate equals jobs and there's a tremendous political divide because there's just a suspicion in the wider population that you're going to lose jobs to adjust to uh, climate change. And that's not the widespread sentiment in the UK. So that's a, that's a real building block. But I think that that's looking at the way that we can address some of these big challenges around nature, around uh, inequality, around the distribution of power and resources in the country regionally, and being willing to try to build large coalitions, build big coalitions, and and talk about these issues in ways that sort of speak to the, the very strong common ground. I think there's real opportunity. The missing piece is leadership, and political leadership is tough. I think that it is hard, you know, will these things, will this happen or will it not happen? A lot of that's going to come down to whether or not there is the political leadership to deliver it because it's not easy. It's easy to play, as you say, the culture wars. It's easy to play short term. It's easy just to be reactive to whatever is in today's news cycle. The kind of change that's needed is tough. It requires um, a, a level of focus and uh, a willingness to work very hard to get a lot of people on side. 
but I think it's possible and it's more possible in Britain than in many other Western countries. It's always dangerous to suggest that the death of one man is going to, it has, has a massive effect on the public mood and imagination. But I mean, with Prince Philip's death, it is starting to feel like the end of an era in Britain. Did you feel that in the last couple of weeks, things have subtly shifted in the way we're thinking about ourselves as a country? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, in a way, I guess, in a sad way, it is the foreboding around the, the Queen's uh, passing uh, that we know is, you know, is is never going to be too far away when someone's in their mid-90s. And I guess that, that will be, it'll be such a watershed moment for the country because it's almost impossible to imagine that the sitting monarch dealt with Winston Churchill as her prime minister and goes through those years of the 50s, 60s and 70s, which is so ancient history now to us. I mean, the, the prime ministers from that era or through the 80s um, as well are all past now. And she's still on the throne. So I, th- I think, yeah, I think it's a it's a taste of that huge moment that is to come. Part of the characteristic of, of Brits is that we're quite nostalgic. You know, history is an important part of our identity. Uh, and I think that's right. Crossing the bridge into a, in a into a different era will be a really tremendous and cathartic moment of, of national change. What's the view in Australia? Give us a sense perhaps of, of uh, whether it's had much of an impact there. The way that People in Britain approach issues of debate and controversy is, I'd probably describe it as people are naturally balancers. In Australia, they're, they're, I'd describe them as pragmatists. It's a little bit different. So, you know, Australia had the opportunity to become a republic back in 1999. There's a sort of, sort of majority for saying um, that the country should become a republic. There's a general sentiment that that shouldn't happen while uh, Queen Elizabeth is still uh, on the throne. There isn't a huge amount of enthusiasm about the Republican movement, though, partly because people are apprehensive about giving politicians more power. And I think the greatest argument in the modern era for for monarchy, and especially for the, uh, the British royal family, is this, the way they've successfully, uh, you know, mostly um, avoided politics. And in a time when politicians are profoundly discredited, I mean, that was how the that was how the 1999 referendum in Australia was defeated. So I don't think there's a, there isn't a huge change in sentiment. I mean, there's just a gradual sort of uh, sense as generations pass, and as you've got a it's a big immigrant population, 28% born overseas, and not a lot of those in the UK. Um, there is a sense of there's a time in the future for the country to transition to, to become a republic, but it's not a high priority. It doesn't feel central to the country's identity, and there is a tremendous affection for the the, the queen, especially. And again, I guess it, it, in the same way, it goes it goes back to that extraordinarily long history uh, going back to the early 1950s. You mentioned that you used to work for the Australian Labour Party. Now, not the same thing, clearly, as the British Labour Party. They have different traditions and different uh, views in many ways. Not the same thing. But do you feel for Keir Starmer right now? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look, I feel for anybody who, if you worked in politics, you... um, uh, yes, I mean the remarkable thing you experience is that politicians are humans, and, and uh, things look so much more difficult from the inside than they they look from the outside. And I think it's becoming harder to lead political parties in the age of social media. You know, a lot of what you do when you're um, a, a political leader is about managing your own side, your your, your parliamentary team, your, your front bench, your parliamentary team, uh, your party membership. Often they create more challenges for you than the uh, than the opposition does, or you know the government in, in, in this case. 
it's just become a lot harder because the dynamics of social media, there's a book by uh, Cass Sunstein, Sunstein recently where he talks about the there's a psychological element when you uh, put people who are all like-minded into one room that and they you, you make them talk about an issue. They will um, invariably go to an extreme if you leave them for a couple of hours. If you put people of different views in a room to talk about an issue, they will uh, their conversation will move them towards the centre ground. Uh, and it's just an interesting part of group psychology for humans. Now, if you think of what we've done with social media, is that we've literally created <laughs> this sort of national experiment where we're putting like-minded people always in the same space. And so you've created a social dynamic among humans where we're going to extremes. So if you're leading a political party, you're getting more and more pressure from actually a relatively small proportion of the population or even of your party often, but they're the most vocal ones. And, you know, because of the, the algorithms, they, they elevate the, the outspoken, you get the most retweets and the, and the likes and so on. And you think that that's actually a conversation that's happening in the real world when very often it's not. And if you, but if you're a you know, political leader, you, you have to respond to that. So you, if you think of the, the issue recently, a few weeks ago about uh, you know, he's speaking in front of the Union Jack too much. That's a good example where the progressive activists who are um, uh, four times more active than any other group on, on social media uh, in, the, in the country um, have really strong views that don't, just don't have any sense of attachment to patriotism and the flag. And vast majority of the country actually does, not wildly, but just does have a ta- attachment to it. And, and I think that there's a lot of those just challenging cultural moments that you have to navigate and the hard works more more specifically if you go to the britain's choice report that you mentioned that we released um which is you can see online by the way britainschoice.uk it's a big national study ten thousand people one of the largest the country's ever had of a with that sort of integrated social psychology into mapping the whole population and what it shows in terms of voting patterns is that the the pathway for labor to regain power is going to be through really just building a coalition and, a, and and winning votes in a number of different segments. But the most significant of them is the group we call the Loyal Nationals. And they're just, they're really similar to progressive activists on their views on the economy in they, they're really concerned about inequality, but they're really different when it comes to matters of group identity, history, pride, and so on. They're very patriotic. You know, they were, they're quite a Brexity group. But they're, they're interesting because they've got a common ground on a whole lot of things with the progressives and then, and they traditionally they were Labour voters and they were the group that in the last election, last couple of elections, have seen the, a very significant defection to, to the Conservatives. So the pathway back is, you, you know, there's not a lot more votes to be won on the, on the, uh, by being super progressive. And it's not even, it's not really a left-right issue nowadays. It's because it's got a, it cuts in different ways and in more complicated ways than it did in the past. But it is about identity and a a sense of identity that appeals across a country that is feeling more fractured. And that makes politics, I think, you know, harder than what it was uh, a generation ago. You're a fan of Mark Steers, also an Australian, and he's a political theorist who's just published a book called Out of the Ordinary. Hasn't got much attention, actually, which is a shame. Tell us about his thinking and how it's informing what you're thinking about the future too. Yeah, well, so the Mark uh, used to had a prominent role in the New Economics Foundation. He's 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 really insightful writer. He looked at the, he looks takes the 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 moment that we're in now and then looks back into the the period between the First World War and the Second World War, um, a time when uh, politics was very polarized, and he talks about how on the right side of politics 
conservatism had become very nostalgic and backwards looking, very kind of rearview mirror, let's recreate the Victorian era. On the left side of politics, there was a sort of abstract, quite intellectualized Marxism, quite theoretical. And the thing about it was that it wasn't really very connected to the lives of ordinary working people. It was sort of arguments about uh, talking about people as the proletariat um, and, and kind of in its own space, kind of disconnected from people. And he talks about how, you know, through that time of polarisation, what really built the post-war story of the of Reconstruction was a story about the dignity of everyday people, a, a story that um, George Orwell, that uh, Barbara Jones, that J.B. Priestley, that uh, Dylan Thomas uh, all did, that was all around instead of talking in this more abstract way about uh, issues, it was more grounded in people's local communities, the, the, the way they lived their lives, giving them a sense of pride around who they were. In ordinary, like almost almost not, not talking about politics all the time. And he talks about how that actually shaped a lot of the memory of the Second World War because the whole those individuals had a big role in basically doing the propaganda during the Second World War about the story of the home front and, and the Blitz era. It was a time of that that laid the foundation for the the solidarity of the post-war era. And I think there's something incredibly interesting about that that just resonates with me from having so many conversations here in the past 18 months with people who don't relate to politics, who definitely don't relate to a lot of the kind of cultural debates that obsess people on Twitter, but who feel under uh, under-recognised, who feel unheard, who who feel neglected, who feel that their public spaces that they live in and their communities are, are neglected, but sort of politics seems uh, somewhat irrelevant to them. And then that's the that's the majority perspective in in Britain now. What's needed to think about this, you know, post-pandemic future is a kind of imagination that is all is cultural as much as as it is political, I think there's an incredible appetite for that. I mean, the things that people get excited talking about at a local community level are just really different to the things that occupy uh, um, our national debates. And if politics can come back into the lives of ordinary people, can make them feel heard, engaged, um, politics can feel useful to their lives again and make a difference, then I think it could be transformative and really positive. And I think Often it is by by looking back at the past moments in our history that were decisive sort of turning points that we can learn things for the future. I think that Mark's book, um, Out of the Ordinary, uh, does a great job doing that. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Great to join you, Ros. Thanks very much. I'm Ros Taylor and thanks for listening. Remember, there's a new bunker every day from Monday to Thursday and a new Saturday edition too. We're moving from Fridays so it doesn't clash with our sibling show, Oh God, What Now? Don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can support the show on Patreon too. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.